Good day. It's uh, Tuesday, November 24th. Thanks for being with us. This is Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. This is the 17th edition of the show, and I'm really happy to uh, share some voices with you this week and some music. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, Free City Radio podcast comes out once a week, and I try to speak with activists and highlight artists uh, in different parts of the world while also being rooted here in Montreal. Free City Radio as a program on CKUT-FM here in the city uh, broadcasts every Wednesday at 11 a.m. So thanks for tuning in to the show today. I wanted to start with an interview that I did um, with Sarah Kayali from Human Rights Watch. Sarah works on addressing issues of human rights abuses in Syria and recently wrote a piece about the release of some prisoners from state-run prisons in Syria. Sarah has addressed in detail the systemic human rights abuses that prisoners face in Syria, while also um, Human Rights Watch, most importantly, I think, has done significant work to detail uh, the rights abuses that um, prisoners, detained people, civilians have faced in the context of being jailed without trial or any legal context by um, non-state actors within Syria. So uh, organizations affiliated with ISIS and other organizations, largely uh, who received funding from Gulf states in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, and also elements within the power structures of the United Arab Emirates. Um, so I really appreciated that Human Rights Watch has tried to detail the experiences of people detained in general. And I wanted to uh, look at this issue um, within the context of the rights of prisoners and the health of prisoners. The situation of people detained in Syria isn't a major focus globally at the moment, but prisoners in Syria, like anywhere on the planet affected by COVID, face particular danger. Um, because of the way the pandemic affects prisons. And so I wanted to talk with Sarah about all this. Uh, here's our conversation. So my name is Sara Kayali. I am the Syria researcher with Human Rights Watch, and I'm responsible for documenting violations of human rights and international humanitarian law in Syria. Sarah, can you uh, talk about a report that you uh, wrote recently, which was on the limited prisoner release that took place um, and how that speaks to a larger issue, which is the huge number of people within prisons that have not gone through any formal judicial process and also the, the presence of the widespread use of torture within state prisons in Syria today. Yeah, so on, on November 4th, um, local news outlets actually reported that the Syrian government had released over 60 individuals from detention facilities in southern Syria and Damascus. This was not the first um, release of its kind. Um, however, it was the largest that we have documented to date. Um, and while this really is positive news um, for Syrians everywhere, it, um, it actually does not 
come close to addressing the scale of the problem of people who have been detained and disappeared over the course of the Syrian conflict. So since 2011, the Syrian government and pro-government militias have detained hundreds of thousands of individuals for expressing political dissent um, and effectively disappeared them. Many of them, actually the majority of them, remain in detention until now or have uh, died uh, in these detention facilities. Uh, this has been an issue that Human Rights Watch and other organizations have documented significantly over the past 10 years, and we've conducted significant advocacy to get these detainees released. However, um, the only movement we've really been seeing has been in terms of these um, small prisoner releases, which really don't address um, the problem as a whole. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, can we just rewind uh, a minute uh, to the first demonstrations that were taking place uh, in Syria um, in the context of uprisings that were taking place in the region, uh, calling for greater um, freedom of expression, uh, economic justice, livelihoods with dignity. I realized that there was a wave of arrests that happened relatively early in these protests in Syria. Could you just mention that briefly and, and highlight why understanding how long this has been taking place uh, is important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you know, I mean, in 2011, Syria joined other Arab countries um, in the Middle East in a, in a wave of protests um, generally called the Arab Spring. Uh, and so thousands of people, actually hundreds of thousands of people, went into the streets in several governorates in Syria, calling for an end to the Syrian government, to the rule of Bashar al-Assad, and calling for um, liberty, economic justice, and the ability to live their lives in, in dignity. Um, the protests started as peaceful, but the Syrian security services and the Syrian government's response was actually to crack down on these political protests. And the way that they did that was by conducting mass arrests of anyone who was found in the streets um, uh, calling for human rights. Uh, so in the early days, in 2011 and 2012, hundreds of thousands were, were picked up from the streets or disappeared from their homes and at checkpoints for having expressed um, what the Syrian government calls political dissent. Uh, these people included really prominent civil society uh, leaders, human rights activists, and even journalists who were reporting on what was happening in Syria. Many of these people... Um, remain disappeared and detained to this day now. And the practices that we had seen the Syrian security services undertake in the early years of the uprisings and the conflict continue until this day. So today in Damascus, in Homs, in Dara'a, in places that have been retaken by the Syrian government, the Syrian security services are still arbitrarily detaining and disappearing anyone who is a threat um, to their absolute control. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have been critical of the actions of opposition groups within Syria in regards to the detention even of Syrian government soldiers, but also, of course, of civilians. Can you talk a bit about why it was important for Human Rights Watch both to critique the practices of some 
uh, armed organizations operating within Syria in regards to the detention of, of people, but also critique the Syrian government's practices. Absolutely, and I think um, from Human Rights Watch's perspective, this is certainly um, a tragedy in that the non-state actors that had initially participated in the uprisings peacefully um, turned into armed groups that copied exactly the tactics that were used by the Syrian government um, to stifle dissent. Um, so Human Rights Watch has, has actually documented arbitrary detention and, and disappearances by Jaysh al-Islam, by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. These are um, extremist groups that are loosely affiliated with the opposition, which they themselves had disappeared. Human rights activists, civil society actors and journalists who spoke up against, against them um, and highlighted their violations. And it was very important to us to, to to document this and, and ensure that the world understood and knew about these violations. Because um, we as Human Rights Watch, we're not really a, a political body. We don't have a, a, a political end um, in sight. What we want is to ensure that all Syrians are able to live in dignity and that their human rights are, are respected. And in order to do that, it doesn't really matter to us who the perpetrator is, be it the Syrian government, be it Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, be it ISIS. What matters to us is that these violations are occurring and that they need to stop. Um, and that really is what distinguishes us from, from other groups. Um, and, and the second reason that we, we wanted to ensure that our body of work reflects the violations committed by uh, non-state actors, such as the groups that I mentioned, was because we are looking to promote a rights-respecting political transition in Syria. Um, and that means that the value of, the, of, of respect, the respect for these values has to really trump who's in power. Um, and I think that's something that in the Syrian conflict, because it's so polarized, people really don't pay attention to it. But I don't think your average Syrian, based on the countless conversations that I've had with them, um, cares if it's Bashar al-Assad or someone else, as long as they are able to live in dignity, as long as their rights are respected, as long as they have the freedom to express themselves and ensure that their families live um, in a dignified manner. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that, Sarah. The last thing I'll ask you about is um, why this issue of prisoner rights is so important. I'm here in Montreal and in North America more generally, uh, people have been uh, protesting um, for the health, livelihood, and the rights of prisoners within the context of the pandemic and the dangers that prisoners face in regards to COVID-19. Um, I would imagine with um, the fact that the pandemic has been hitting Syria in the last month and, of course, before that, but very seriously recently, that this is an issue. Uh, beyond, of course, all the other issues you mentioned in regards to the lack of judicial process for many prisoners in Syria today? The starting point is even, even before the coronavirus pandemic, um, conditions in detention facilities were horrific. Um, you had 
hundreds of prisoners being stacked on top of each other in cells that are that are only fit for eight people. Um, you had detainees who were dying of lack of access to medical care of preventable diseases that they would not have been dying of had they not been in those detention facilities. This is in addition to the practices of torture and the use of starvation um, that the Syrian government and other, um, other non-state actors in Syria have used against people that they've, they've detained. Uh, so, the, so even before the coronavirus pandemic, the picture inside um, Syrian detention facilities w was terrifying. Um, and I say this even though it's, it's, it's my job to basically document these, these atrocities, um, I have not seen anything like what I've seen um, uh, in, in Syrian detention facilities. So when you add to that the coronavirus pandemic and this highly infectious disease that results in fatalities um, in a large percentage of the cases, you can tell why there were significant concerns that overcrowded prisons where humanitarian conditions were already horrific, where the immunity of many of the detainees was down, that this would be a serious, serious concern um, for everyone who's been watching this, um, who's been watching this tragedy unfold. Um, so that's that's why for us, especially in this period, um, the rights of people who've been detained uh, are, are a top priority. Our advocacy really has been focused on ensuring that international monitors have access to detention facilities, that those that are arbitrarily detained are released, and that the Syrian government really takes responsibility alongside UN agencies present in Syria um, to ensure that, that, that they can um, mitigate some of these conditions um, that we've seen in, in, in detention facilities. Thank you so much for sharing that and also the pre-pandemic uh, context. Um, Professor Salwa Ismail at SOAS wrote that book, um, The Rule of Violence, about you know, the, the history of detention in Syria and, and how it was used as a tool of social control. So just wanted to mention that for anybody uh, who might be interested in that book. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to speak today, Sarah. It was my pleasure. That was Sarah Khayali from Human Rights Watch. Um, thank you, Sarah, for joining Free City Radio. I would encourage people to look at the reports of Human Rights Watch on Syria. Just look it up, humanrightswatchhrw.org, uh, and you can just select Syria uh, in their list of countries globally. This is Free City Radio. Um, thanks for being with us. It's the 24th of November. I'm your host, uh, Stefan Kristoff. I wanted to now go to a piece of music by Narsi, um, an artist, a writer, a professor based in Montreal of the Iraqi diaspora. This is his track, Vietnam. Vietnam, Iraq, Vietnam, Palestine, Vietnam, they want to see us gone. 
so far from home I can feel the bombs close to heart Like the death of a being dying War made us feel like being free is wrong Trying to be a man with a child's spirit song Lullabies when a brother dies No merit when a sister perish us America Drilling with loud toys as the cowboy Bullet riddle the Middle East for little peace Giving in to the inner cheek Over to the feast like a winner You cry oil and Dow joy The same resource you drain Came from remains of deceased corpses Maine all in plain view Like Daniel Day Lewis I knew it You giving off that kill me buzz There will be blood talking about um, discretionary wars that are not of great intrinsic national security import right to the United States they are wars of choice right, right? Um, that the United States cannot summon the political will and military um, military strategy to win and in both cases the enemies know that their job is not to defeat the United States military to every last man it's merely to prolong the war and break, Erosion, exactly, break the will of um, their oppressor
That was Vietnam by Narsi here on Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. It is the 24th of November, um, and I wanted to now go to a conversation I had with Hamad Khan from the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Um, this is a key organization um, in the Los Angeles area that has drawn um, attention to policing abuses, uh, police killings within the LA area, and has recently launched a coalition campaign to call for the defunding of the LAPD. I think their work's really uh, important for a number of reasons, particularly because Stop LAPD Spying Coalition attempts to look at the systemic issues around policing not only looking at the current context, but the history of policing as linked to colonialism in the Americas and as linked to slavery. This is our conversation. Thank you, Hamid Khan, for joining uh, Free City Radio. And here's our exchange. The initiative that you're talking about now, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, is not particularly directly focused on the Muslim and the immigrant community. But it's really been built uh, on the understanding of the last 25, 30 years of my work as well, of how, you know, communities are specifically targeted um, and criminalized, um, which then moves into the broader arena of policing. So you can look at this as an expansion and a building of what our experiences had been learning through organizing and, and challenging and exposing uh, the national security police state uh, right after 9-11. But I've also taken a step further that the work didn't start after 9-11 either, because obviously the impact um, of uh, surveillance, and we go back into the 1996 laws um, around surveillance and national security laws, we go into the 1994 laws about the police bill, and on and on and on, because that very much, the, one of the, our guiding values of the coalition is that this is not a moment in time, but a continuation of history. Mm-hmm. So, so looking at surveillance through that lens, and the, another one is that there's always an other, there's always a, a, a constructed enemy as well. So with that said, uh, you know, just surveillance in the United States didn't start with the FBI. It didn't start with COINTELPRO or counterintelligence programs. It didn't start with after 9-11, but it has um, um, been going on for the last 500 years in the Americas because surveillance has always been the tip of that policing knife. Um, and, and the way we see that is that where we are now, um, that surveillance is being used uh, to police uh, race, uh, poverty, and suspect bodies. But how that's done is through the white gaze, through the gaze of white supremacy, that who's in, who's out, uh, who's a threat, who's not, um, who should be contained, who should be controlled, who should be criminalized. So basically, as we see, as we talk about um, these methodologies and programs, this is a primary tool for social control. And it's been going on. So in that, uh, 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 you know, just about think about uh, continuation of history, we've mapped out going back about 300 years, and other scholars have done this work as well, mm-hmm. about the lantern laws in the early 1700s in New York, um, around the Black Codes, uh, then the Red Squads, which proceeded uh, in the 1880s around the labor movement, um, and then Jim Crow laws, and then, uh, you know, we go into the war on gangs and war on drugs and war on crime and now the war on terror. And now, of course, the language of the facade 
or the pseudoscience of predictive algorithms and analytics um, and machine learning and AI and artificial intelligence. So this is the trajectory that we are working on, but all through that, the justification and the claim, uh, of course, uh, of how white supremacy needs to be preserved and maintained is that how the other is demonized, how the other is created. So how, you know, just how, how the native community um, was the other, how the, the savage native narrative, the criminal black narrative, the illegal Latino narrative, the manipulative Asian narrative, the, the, the terrorist Muslim narrative, the deviant trans narrative. So all of these narratives have been there, but, there's, but as we build that as organizers, um, there's also power in that. And there, there, there's, a, there's a reason why we do that too, because when you start looking at that, that while on one hand we see the system of oppression, but we also see a tremendous opportunity in building upon uh, that has been going on forever, the culture of resistance that how many of us fall within that other camp as well and the other umbrella, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of power in that. So that's what really, uh, so I was at South Asian Network from 1990 till 2010 and was on the front lines of the organizations on the front lines on challenging and exposing and fighting back against uh, police violence, state violence, the national security police state. And I transitioned uh, out of there in 2010 um, and then, and, and had been organizing in, in Los Angeles for about 35 years or so. Um, and in 2010, got together with some folks who've been historically been uh, uh, with building with around police violence and started looking at that how rapidly counterterrorism and counterinsurgency programs were being incorporated into domestic policing. So even like, for example, you know, predictive policing. Now, predictive policing has its origins in Iraq and Afghanistan. This was through uh, a, a grant that some of the academics got, Professor Jeffrey Banthingham and, and his cohorts, who claimed that they can predict insurgencies in Iraq that is, uh, they've been going on. They got that in 2005 or so. And then, of course, like anything else, all wars abroad are wars at home. Um, so all of these technologies and these practices are then replicated and incorporated into local and domestic operations. Um, so then we see in 2009, this being shaped as predictive policing locally. So the point here being uh, that the work of the Stop NAPD Spine Coalition is really rooted both in, both in histor historic and, and, and current realities. Um, the work is really rooted in, in not looking at remedies through a legal lens, although there's, that's, that's, a, that's a tool that is available, um, but also to primarily shift that narrative and challenge the existing narratives, which had been for years and you know, had been hovering at about 30,000 foot level, that, uh, you know, that the, the, and the narrative is the invasion of privacy. We see this, uh, the invasion of privacy as a very narrow scope in a very privileged space, especially it's, it's a very white privileged space where many in our communities and we're based out of Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, um, which is, uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever been there, um, which is the, the largest uh, contained open air um, uh, residence of about three to 6,000 unhoused people uh, in a 50 block area, right there under the shadow of extreme wealth in the financial district and all of that. So we're based out of there. So we are, instructed and guided um, and, 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 and build our understanding through the experiences of folks um, who are on the receiving end on the day-to-day -day of policing, but in that, keeping an eye on the undesirable, tracking the undesirable, 
um, containing the undesirable is the primary focus and surveillance plays a key role in that. Thanks for breaking all that down. Um, there's a lot of points there. Uh, I wanted to pick up on uh, a point that I think relates both to the work that you're doing and also uh, situations north of the colonial borderline between Canada and the U United States. And that's um, the origins of police forces in the process of colonization and dispossession of indigenous people. Um, as I'm sure you're following the RCMP here in Canada, um, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as they're called, has played a central role in um, attacking uh, the land defense movements of indigenous people. Um, I'm, I, I'm bringing that up because this, in this past year, there's been a lot of discussion about police tactics and that, that's moved to some degree into the mainstream narratives. Um, however, a lot of the time those uh, policing tactics or police violence, police killings um, are spoken about as anomalies. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about the ways that that violence is systemic and how it's connected to the colonial origins of policing forces in the Americas. Um, so uh, police and policing as we know it, I mean, even if when we look at the origins of policing in the United States, especially in the South and how it's expanded, are very much in the in, in, in slave patrol. So, so if the, the original intent of policing uh, was to protect property, and in this case, we were talking about human body as a property, um, and to re and, and, and go after runaway slaves, people who were looking for, for, for liberation and all of that. I mean, that goes back into, you know, whether we look at um, the colonization of the Americas, whether we look at the colonizations of Africa, whether we look at colonization of South Asia and India and other parts of the world, um, you know, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that people say that, you know, well, about um, 20,000 people ruled over 20 million people. Well, but they didn't just do it just because like, you know, they had a magic button. They had created an infrastructure and a methodology uh, to immediately identify that who the threat was and where the threat lies. Um, so in that, that whole uh, process, and, and, and that's what counterinsurgency is, that is what we call community policing in this, in this day and time as well. So to your question, I mean, law enforcement, is, it's never been an anomaly. I mean, if, we, if you track back even the last 20 years, um, you know, just on an average, law enforcement murders about seven or eight people a day in the United States. Um, and these are official numbers that are continue to be released by, by various agencies as well and, and, and news media outlets too. So in a sense, um, law enforcement and police as we know that has always been there as to wage war um, on non-white people. I mean, I don't know how else to, this is most plainly put, I can say that, that this has been their role. And in essence, that land becomes very central to that. So, so what we are doing right now is that we've been able to expose um, predictive policing that, and to debunk this whole pseudoscience about predicting crime, but it's more about quarantining people in their communities. It's more about deeming and using this, this, uh, this thing about prediction to demonize land to where people are. And it very much feeds into the gentrification and the displacement and development um, that has been going on in, in, in various parts of the, of the country and particularly in Los Angeles. 
So now with that said, I mean, today, as it was 500 years ago or 300 years ago or 235 years ago, however long it's been, that police remains the primary enforcement tool um, of capitalism, of white supremacy, of, and especially settler colonialism in the United States. And I, and I would venture to say that that's the same uh, tactical operations, that's the same methodology, that's the same justification, and the same institutional form of policing in Canada as well, which is another settler colonial state as well. And then on top of that, there's also tremendous amount of information sharing uh, between the US and Canada. And actually they are uh, this, so supposedly this private club of five countries, which is called Five Eyes, Five Eyes and Nine Eyes and Eleven Eyes and all of that. So which is UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. So in a sense, policing and on, on, uh, with the inside the borders, and these information sharing partnerships outside the border are the key element and the key tools to preserve uh, settler colonialism and, and uh, maintain and control uh, white supremacy as well. Thanks for sharing that. Beyond um, this layered uh, anti-colonial critique of policing, you've been working on, on the ground uh, with many people. Uh, you've been hosting these um, online discussions with others uh, about these issues uh, and policing uh, in LA specifically, but also beyond, of course, as you've talked about. Could you maybe highlight a few um, current issues um, that are of immediate uh, concern for your uh, campaign right now? And, and, and maybe issues also that I would imagine are not in the national corporate media in the United States. I mean, I think uh, uh, the issues, the, the, so let me just put it this way, that the intent remains the same and the expected outcomes remains the same. The intent as it was 100 years ago was to cause harm uh, to black, indigenous and other non-white communities. I mean, there was no element of public safety. It was to about control and contain and in, uh, to cause harm. It was 200 years ago, the same thing. And today, as in uh, November 23rd, 2020, the intent remains the same as well. The way it's being unleashed, and that's what we say, it's not a moment in time, but a continuation of history. But of course, over the years, how um, operationally and, 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 and you know, just deployments have changed is something that we need to be constantly stay on the train because the train is constantly moving. Yeah. And I think currently, as, um, as my colleague Jamie Garcia would say, that it's about um, this whole triangulation of, uh, of data-driven policing, uh, location-based policing, and the, the conversation of, of offender-based policing. So in that, whether it's repeat offender and all of that, so, so the way it kind of works is um, that intelligence-led policing was introduced, and it's, it's, a, it's a practice that comes out of UK about 35 or so years ago, started with the Kent Constabulary, which was adopted in the United States in which behavioral surveillance and data mining became two central elements. So what is happening is that policing is getting a pass um, because they are using this whole approach of hunch-based um, policing or speculative policing, claiming that behavior can tell us that what a person is gonna do, which is completely hunch-based, right? Even to the extent that they, this is a national security program, and this was one of the big first fights that brought Stop LAPD Spine Coalition into, like, you know, we started off on the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative, um, which is a SAR program. 
which is a, 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 a countrywide program uh, by every local law enforcement agency, transit police, campus police, sheriff's department, every public sector, private sector agency. And the way they define uh, 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 the suspicious activity is, and I quote directly, and I quote that it's observed behavior reasonably indicative of pre-operational planning of criminal and or terrorist activity. So now let's break it down. That someone's behavior is being observed by an officer, right? That reasonably indicates to them about pre-operational planning that somebody's thinking of doing something wrong. Hmm. This is an official definition of a program that was launched in the aftermath of the 9-11 the commission report. And when a law was passed, the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act in 2004, that established the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which brought a whole bunch of agencies under one umbrella, and on and on and on. And in that, they launched this because the idea was that, well, I mean, you know, we can we can start tracking people and and doing information sharing on all kinds of violations people be in or known criminal activity. But what about people who are thinking of doing something? Right. So they launched this program and LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, was the first um, police department to adopt this in March of 2008. And in which many activities, which are a daily routine sort of thing, like using video cameras in public, uh, drawing diagrams in, in public, walking into infrastructures and asking about hours of operation, um, uh, taking photographs in public and on and on are considered as suspicious activity. Now, under the under constitutional uh, protections, these are supposedly protected activities. But yet at the same time, if you are out there taking a photograph um, and the officer can open up a file on you, which is a secret file, you won't even know what happened. That And, and we've seen these. We, we've seen a bunch of them. And like, you know, somebody is taking photographs and somebody's hobby is to take a photograph. Well, they would get that person's information, either stop them and ask them what they're doing or through their car license plate number or whatever else that information is noted in a file within 24 hours it is, it is sent to lapd's uh, counterterrorism special operations bureau so now a mere act of taking photographs puts you in that over there supposedly is, it is vetted to see uh, or to see if there's any any nexus or links to terrorism or criminal activity and then it's sent to these central hub systems uh, warehouses uh, called fusion centers there's about 80 plus of those in, in the country and, and one of the largest ones is in East Los Angeles County where supposedly it's, 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 it's checked again and uh, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force could launch a further investigation and then your information is uploaded into a central database which can be accessed by thousands and thousands of other agencies and public sector and private sector companies. So in a sense, you know, that's how, where this is going. And now in the world of artificial intelligence and predictive analytics, um, you know, we are in this world of the pseudoscience that is completely speculative in nature and, and completely ripe for more abuse and, and more racial profiling and more containing and controlling and criminalizing uh, communities that have historically been targeted by law enforcement. Thank you so much for, for outlining all that. Um, I guess uh, the last thing I would just ask you about, uh, and it's obviously connected to everything that you've been sharing, uh, is the importance of um, the defund the police campaign. I mean, an obvious conclusion um, 
from a lot of the details that you've outlined is the importance of removing public funds from the police. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could outline why that demand is important. Obviously, you know, beyond defund the police, things can go much further than that in terms of systemic deconstruction of a lot of these institutions. But just uh, as a starting point, um, and, and also just in regards to a contemporary um, uh, discussion that's entered the pop culture, um, if, if you could maybe end on, on, on any reflections you have about, about that. Right, right. Well, it's interesting you say that because we tomorrow the LAPD is uh, uh, presenting its uh, draft budget for the following year, 2021-22. And uh, over the weekend, we launched this de uh, defund surveillance and defund LAPD uh, campaign. It's all over social media. So the coalition from the get-go, we're not a nonprofit. We never filed for nonprofits. We're not a 501c3, and people are fiercely abolitionists. So our, uh, we, we very much ground ourselves in the abolitionist work and tradition of, of basically, you know, getting rid of the LAPD and, and you know, just, and, and sometimes this language gets really sanitized, but we want the destruction of LAPD. It's very simple. Um, in that the defund movement from our vantage point is about starving the beast. That how do you starve the beast? How do you take away the various uh, lifelines and the various ways through money and cash uh, that this beast continues to thrive and continues to cause harm and continues to murder people. So in a sense, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, an obviously abolition is not a delete button. So looking at it, if it's done, so there are different ways to look at defunding as well. One of the defunding ways to look at it is a very uh, sort of, a, again, uh, a weak version, which would be like, well, I mean, police is necessary, but let's take some of this money away. No. Our goal is to completely starve the beast and to abolish the police because they have no place. At least the way it is set up now, there is no place. And it's up to the communities to decide because the communities have a lot of power within them as well. Um, so it's about housing. It's about education. It's about shelter and like, you know, about building um, uh, institutions that enhance the human condition and not traumatize and destruct the human condition. So in a sense, it's a journey towards abolition, at least the way we see that, where it's not about like taking a little bit of money away and letting them thrive otherwise. No, we have to go after the, old, old, the whole house and that has to be brought down because it has done nothing. I mean, nothing since at least LAPD since 1869. So it's been what, about 151, 152 years since its existence has done nothing besides cause harm, cause trauma, um, cause displacement, um, and cause a whole lot of pain in many communities, but particularly the non-white communities in Los Angeles, and particularly the black community and the indigenous communities. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak today. I really appreciate it. Of course, absolutely. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks. That was Hamid Khan uh, from Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Uh, you can check them out at stoplapdspying.org. This is Free City Radio. Uh, thanks for tuning in. It is the 24th of November. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, thanks again for listening to the show. You can get in touch with us anytime. Um, you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Free City Radio. Just search us. Uh, we're up on SoundCloud also, soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. There we have a lot of archives and also one-off interviews that you might not hear on the podcast 
Again, we broadcast on the FM dial on your radio every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM in the Montreal region. Um, For the podcast, would really encourage people, if they like it, um, to encourage their friends to subscribe. You can give us a rating, of course, on Apple Podcasts if you like it. And if you want to reach me, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Spirodon, that's S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Thanks for tuning in. This is Free City Radio. And to go out, I wanted to play an excerpt from a mix uh, that was put together by Joseph Sonicondro from A Closer Listen, which is a great uh, music blog. Would really encourage people to check it out. Just search A Closer Listen, all one word. This is a mix that Joseph um, put together called Istanbul Express. Um, I'm going to play a few um, tracks from this mix. Uh, you can find it on soundcloud.com slash a closer listen. Um, this is uh, Stefan Christoph here in Montreal. Thanks for listening to Free City Radio. We'll be back next week with another episode. Take care.
Cemal'ım, Cemal'ım. 